And the rest of us are going to be in Romans chapter 9 this morning. So if you have a Bible, you'll want to find Romans chapter 9. And then following our time studying God's Word, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. So all of this is really moving us toward that and worshiping and honoring Christ by doing what He says to do. And that's eating bread and drinking wine, thinking about His body and His blood and giving Himself for us. Well, Romans 9 is, is a real standout chapter in the Bible. It is a great, great standout chapter. It's great because Romans 9 tells us a lot about God's sovereignty. That is, it tells us a lot about His freedom to do whatever it is He wants to do and certainly tells us about what I like to call His Godness. Romans 8, or excuse me, Romans 9 stands out also because Romans 9 answers a lot of questions that we have. Uh, In fact, it surfaces a lot of questions and then answers them, and it answers them with clarity and uh, precision. Romans 9 is a great standout also because it, it really underscores just how free grace is. Romans 9 is a great standout chapter because it, it sets the stage for us to see the significance of the person and work of Christ and the purposes of God. It's a great, great chapter, Romans chapter 9. With that said, when I think of Romans 9, I think of, a, of an old saying that goes like this. The same sun that melts the snow hardens the clay. Romans 9 is a favorite chapter among Christians and has been for millennia. But Romans 9 is also detested by many. I can't think of a more controversial chapter in the Bible than Romans 9. Now, I hope you're in the first category. I I, I hope you are going to be impressed with the godness of God, the freedom of God to do what it is He wants to do and not troubled by it. But nevertheless, this is what we will see in Romans 9. God's sovereign grace, His free grace, His freedom to do what it is He wants to do. So hold on to your hat, so to speak. Um, We're going to jump into the deep end, so to speak, as well. What Romans 9 does, if you need an outline, is Romans 9 really answers four big questions about God's sovereign grace. So if you want to understand the, the whole chapter, really four big questions about God's sovereign grace. I'll preview the four questions in just a moment, but we're only going to get to the first one today. I thought we were going to get to four, then I thought we were going to get to three, then I thought we were going to get to two, and we're going to get to one. And one, since I hate to do that because... What we're going to look at today is going to bring up more questions and and we'll eventually need to answer them, but we'll have to wait till next Sunday for that. Four big questions about God's sovereign grace that Romans 9 answers. Number one, first question, is God a failure? Is God a failure? That's in verses 6 to 13. 6 to 13. Second big question about God's sovereign grace, is God unfair? Verses 14 to 18, is God unfair? And I would guess that when some of you hear the first section, you're going to be asking yourself that question, is this fair? Is God fair? The third big question about God's sovereign grace is, is God to blame? Is God to blame? Verses 19 to 23, and I would imagine some of you will be thinking that. And the fourth and final question is, is God inclusive? Is God inclusive? And that's verses 24 to 33. Now, I keep saying sovereign grace, sovereign grace, sovereign grace. I I should probably tell you what I mean. Uh, It's pretty common verbiage in Christian circles. It is around here. But in case you don't know what I mean by that, what I mean when I say God's sovereign grace, when I say sovereign, the word sovereign is the word for king. Okay? In, In days gone by, people would use this term to refer to a king. They'd say, oh yes, my sovereign. Oh yes, my king. And God in the Bible is described as sovereign at times. And he's described as sovereign a lot, even where the word is not used. That's where I like to say we're talking about the godness of God, that he is on the throne and he, as a king, does what he wants to do. Now, sometimes that, first of all, doesn't make sense to us because we're not familiar with kings. And second of all, if we are somewhat familiar, we don't like it. Our history as a nation in its association with a king is not a good one. Okay, we don't think happy thoughts in this country when we think about a king. 
But when we're talking about God's sovereignty, God's godness, we're talking about the one who is pure, holy, righteous. We're talking about the one who is perfect. And so what we want to do as we read Romans 9 is we want to make sure that we see God in His place. We don't need to put God in His place, but see God in His place. And that is on the throne. How about this? Doing what He wants to do because He's God. Keep that in mind as we look at this controversial passage. I feel compelled to pray. And so let's just take a moment and pray before we actually get into it. Father, we are thankful for your revelation of yourself. Thinking back to Romans 1 where we were so long ago, I remember how there we're described as people who are idolaters. We think of you in and of ourselves in the wrong way. We're thankful today as a church that you've revealed yourself to us by your grace so that we can understand who you really are. And Lord, I would pray for the men and women and boys and girls who are here, including myself, that to the the degree that we have tried to cram you into some sort of little tiny box and labeled it God, that our hearts would be changed that we would find ourselves coming under the authority of your word and who you say you are, and that we would be radically changed if necessary, and we would have our minds rocked if necessary, so that we might know you for who you are, so that we might see Christ for who he is, and leave here more passionate about worshiping you and serving you in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Question number one, is God a failure? That seems like kind of a weird thing to ask, weird for a pastor to ask. Is God a failure? Well, that question isn't actually in the passage like the other questions essentially are, but it's anticipated. Verse 6 is anticipating a question. It's answering a question, so it's anticipating a question. Does this mean God has failed? Now, if you haven't been here with us, you'll, you'll need to know why he would even be posing that or answering that. Does this mean God has failed? The reason that question comes up, the reason the answer comes is because of this. We've got Romans 1 to 8 for context. And Romans chapter 1 through 8 has made one thing clear, and that is that God in His grace, according to His love, didn't give us what we deserve. Instead, He sent His Son into this world to live a perfect life, earning righteousness, fulfilling righteousness. He had His Son die a sinner's death, absorbing His just wrath. He had His Son rise again from the dead so that we would have newness of life, have victory. And this is called the Gospel. Romans 1-8 has been about the Gospel. And then Romans 8 just cranks it up full bore and talks about how because of the Gospel, because we're in Christ, our salvation is sure. Our salvation is secure. You can take it to the bank spiritually and nothing could take it away from you. And it's just this great full bore praising God for the Gospel. But if you're a thinking person, which I hope you are, (laughs) if you're a thinking person and you think about this long enough, in light of what the Bible says, you start wondering about something. You start thinking, hmm, God makes these promises that are so sure in Romans 8. But I've been reading the Bible, and and it seems to me that He made sure promises to Israel. And why is it then that most Jews reject Jesus as Messiah? Hmm. And then the thought is, can I really trust Him for what He promises in Romans 8? See, there's that question that eventually, you might not be asking it today, but eventually as you think through the Bible and the implications, you think, huh, is it because God failed? Did God try very hard, try with all that He could to be a universalist when it comes to the nation of Israel? Or in general for that matter, but He just couldn't get it done. That's the context of our question. Is God a failure? What gives? What about Israel? So look at verse 6 with me, if you would, where he says, to answer that question that he's anticipating, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed. 
For the record, he says, what you're eventually going to start thinking, no, 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 don't go there. God has not failed. He made those promises to Israel. Make no question about it. You read the Old Testament and you see them emphasized all over the place. But we're, we're not talking about the failure of God here just because we don't have universalism. And the rest of our section today is going to explain why the answer to the question, has God failed, is, is no. Okay, you ready for the controversy? By way of preview, he's going to give two historic illustrations from the Old Testament that show us God hasn't failed. God chooses some for salvation and He rejects others according to His sovereign freedom to do so because He's the King. God hasn't failed Maybe we've failed to remember that is the kind of God we're talking about here. That's what this section is about, verses 6 to 13. Is God a failure? No. God's not a failure because He was never trying to be a universalist to begin with. He chose some. And He rejected others. That is why there are some who believe in Messiah and there are others who don't. Yeah, this starts messing with our little boxes, doesn't it? Our little boxes marked lowercase g-o-d. It's pretty harsh, maybe, at least at first appearance. If this is the first time you've ever heard anything about this, I think you're in the right place. I'm not going to answer all your questions today. In fact, a lot of these questions come after this passage. But I do hope that this at least lights a fire and you start asking questions. And, and, and I do hope that it allows you to let God be God, as the Bible says, and every man a liar if necessary. This puts God on the throne doing whatever it is He wants to do. Now, one more thing before we look at the historical examples. In Romans 10, he's going to talk about belief and unbelief. So please don't misunderstand. We're going to get to belief and unbelief, and yes, you do have to believe, and not everybody believes, and, and so we're morally accountable. But here he's going for the ultimate. He's peeling back the layers. The ultimate, ultimate is God is an electing God. God is a choosing God. And that's why not everybody believes Jesus is Messiah. The first historical figure is Isaac. We learn about Isaac in verses 6 to 9. Look there with me if you would in verse 6. It says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's easy enough to understand, isn't it? Just because you're physically related to them doesn't mean you're actually a true Israelite, a believer. Then he goes on to say in verse 7, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. It's a little bit more complicated. And you think, what do you mean they're not all children of Abraham because they're his offspring? It would seem to me they're all the children of Abraham if they're his offspring. If he sired these children, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're his offspring or vice versa. But look, look with me in verse 7 where he explains. But through Isaac, now quoting Genesis 21, 12, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Oh. Now, he's expecting us to remember our Old Testaments, whether we do or whether we don't. He's expecting us to remember when you go back to that Genesis passage, God promised to bless through Isaac. But he had another son, Ishmael. And he said, the blessing will come through Isaac. It's not going to come through Ishmael. He's, he's a God who makes choices. He wasn't trying for universalism, saying it'll come through both of them. No, he's a particular God who does things in a particular way, and he said, this is how I'm going to do it. So here Paul is reminding us of what the Old Testament teaches. It's describing how God works. Interestingly enough, just as a technical note, in verse 7 toward the end, where it says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. I'm reading from the ESV translation where it says named. 
Actually, the Greek word is the word for called, where, remember Romans 8, we learned about the called of God, the chosen of God. He's, he's obviously carrying the flow from Romans 8 into Romans chapter 9. Remember, we added the chapter divisions for convenience. So keep that in mind. God's distinguishing grace. He chose Isaac and he didn't choose Ishmael. Look at verse 8 with me if you would. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. Just because you were fathered or sired by Abraham doesn't mean you are a child of God. Because he goes on to say in verse 8, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Verse 9, for this is what the promise said. Now he's quoting Genesis 17, 16, 18, 10, 18, 14. About this time next year I will, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. See, God is distinguishing. The promise to bless the nations, ultimately, God says it's going to happen through Sarah to Isaac. It's not going to happen, Hagar, to Ishmael. Pretty clear what he's getting at. It's as if he's saying, just, just remember who God is, you know? remember God is this distinguishing God. Sort of reminds me of Jesus when he would say over and over again, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? This is all there in your book. This is the kind of God we're talking about. That's a pretty good argument, but you could say, well, you know what, I'm not so sure because, uh, you know, Hagar was an Egyptian and it wasn't Abraham's wife. So I understand, actually, it, it deserved to come through Sarah. That could be argued. So he gives us a second illustration that is ironclad. The second historical illustration that go, shows that God is a distinguishing God, calls some and not others, is Jacob. You might want to fasten your seatbelt for this one if it's not already on. Verse 10, and not only so. Okay, I've got a better argument, as a matter of fact, and not only so, but also when Rebecca, the matriarch of the next generation is who that is, we're moving from Sarah to Rebecca, when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, verse 11 says, though they, referring to the twins, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of His call. Look at verse 12. She was told, the older will serve the younger. And you're ready for the next one? Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let that rattle around in your brain a little bit. Say what? It's amazing what it does for people when they read the Bible. You read the Bible and all of a sudden your, your views of God just get rocked. I told you before about the, the college student that I had to privilege of talking to years and years ago, a UCLA student. She was coming to our Bible studies and we were just reading the Bible in essence and she, she was at her wits end bawling afterward one time and I felt so sad what's going on but I'll never forget when she said, Pat, I come here and I learn the Bible but you're distorting my view of God. And I'll say what I've said before inside, I was going, Yes! It's amazing what the Bible does to our view of God. I just would challenge you just to, to think about the emphasis. Though they were not yet born. Okay, they hadn't done anything yet. Well, it says that. As a matter of fact, I don't have to add it. And had done nothing, either good or bad. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Wow. 
Now, my question for you is, what does that mean? What does that mean? The Bible says a lot of things, but what does that mean? Remember, our context is the answer to that question that's implied in verse 6. Does this mean God has failed? God's plan for universalism amongst the Jews didn't work. He says, oh, no, 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 no. You've got to remember, God is a God who distinguishes. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I was never intending to be a universalist and save every Jew. Don't you know how I am? hadn't done anything yet and God chose. Now, some, some are going to suggest to you that this doesn't mean what it says. I'm not going to do that. I think it means what it says. And if you're going to be mad at me and say, boy, that Pastor Pat Aberdorf or whatever his name is, man, I don't like him at all. He just, he just says he believes what it says. I'm going to find myself another pastor who tells me that it means something other than what it says. It's probably not a good idea. I mean, I guess we could start a religion. If I wanted to take a different angle on it, we're going to start the Aberdorf religion or whatever my last name is. And in my religion, a key tenet is the Bible means whatever we want it to mean. And the Bible, where we're uncomfortable, doesn't mean what it says. Well, you know, where that takes you logically, guess who the God of this religion is? The guy whose last name we can't pronounce. (laughs) Because ultimately, I'm calling the shots and saying, well, I'm going to agree with that part, but not that part. It really puts us in a corner. It puts us in a funny place. Oh, is is this really it? I took the time to look up every occurrence of the Greek word that's translated hate here in the New Testament, miseo, M-I-S-E-O. And there is one time when it's not translated hate in the ESV translation. In Revelation chapter 18, verse 2, it's translated detest. You know? Guess guess we kind of got the idea. So if you don't like the word hate, I've got a synonym for you. It's the word detest. It doesn't say he loved... Esau less. It says he hated him. Now, I don't know exactly how all of this works because I don't think God is one-dimensional and I think there is a sense for a different sermon, a different time in which God loves his enemies. But make no question about it, he also hates his enemies. And that's what's being talked about here. It's pretty clear what he's saying. And I think it means what it says. And that is here to prove the point, to support the point that God is not a failure. He's just a God who elects. He has a purpose. He has a design. Next question for you that I have as we look at this and think about this. How can this be? You know? Jacob, I loved Esau. I hated I want to say, how can this be in my Bible? How could it possibly be that God would hate Esau? But you know, before that question goes to print and gets published, I've got another question that we should be asking. How could it possibly be that God loves Jacob? This is shocking. This is alarming. This is is outrageous. That's the question we should be asking, right? We've read Romans, most of us. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and in that context, teaches that we by nature are sinners because we're united with Adam. He was our representative in the garden. So by nature, we are the enemies of God. Not only that, we read in Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there's no one who's righteous, not one. So not only by nature are we sinners, by practice we're sinners. Romans chapter 3, verse 12, no one does good, not even one. We should be going... Wait a minute, God, I kind of have a problem. At least in our heads. I just don't see how you could possibly love Jacob. 
That's how we should be thinking. I would say. If Romans hasn't been enough to cause you to want to ask that question instead of the other question, how about Psalm 11.5? Listen to Psalm 11.5. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul, the very core of His being, His soul hates the wicked. Now, you probably didn't learn that verse in Awana or Sunday school. God hates the wicked. Okay. Man, my box is just getting rocked. But please think about how amazing it is and how dumbfounded we should be by the reality that God saves anyone, that God chooses anyone. When we're thinking, dare we think it, how dare you, God, do that? It would be much more logical, even though I don't recommend it, to say, God, how dare you choose anyone? That's the more amazing thing. That's why I liked what Charles Hodge, the great Princeton theologian of 1835, what he said. Listen to this. Often misperceived as harsh, as a harsh teaching that portrays cruel, despotic God. The doctrine of election actually is a doctrine of amazing love. It is the truth of God's special love for His chosen ones, a sovereign love that is eternal, unconditional, and immutable, that is unchanging. God clearly has a distinguishing love for His elect as representative by His love for Jacob. Man, this is amazing that God would love Jacob. This is why I will sign on the dotted line to the doctrine of unconditional election. Romans 9. Let me explain what that means unconditional election that God chooses. There's no question about the fact that the Bible teaches that, that God chooses. Read Ephesians 1. Read Romans 8. But then there's a question about, does God choose because of something He sees us do first? Does God choose because we are morally upright and good and better than those other people? Or does God choose because it's His sovereign free will to do so? That's unconditional election. I believe in unconditional election with all of my heart. Why? Because of Romans 9. Before they did anything, God chose one. He didn't choose the other one. You say, what practical value is that? Well, it helps me, number one, how about this for practical value? It helps me know who God is. So I'm not an idolater. It's pretty helpful. The other practical value is causes me to be a worshiper of the God who saves based upon nothing I've done. Which is a whole lot different than being a worshiper of God because He saw something I did first and He responded to my good choice. This is just rocking good in a helpful sort of way, but it's very humbling. One more question before we move on, and that's, why, why must it be this way? Why does it have to be this way? And he actually answers that question. Look, look with me, if you would, at verse 11. See, in 11, what happens is he, he interrupts himself. And the interruption explains why. But let's read the whole verse, and then I'll, you'll see the interruption. Mine's marked off by some dashes. Yours might be parentheses, depending on your translation. Verse 11 says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, then we've got the dash. So you should skip then to verse 12 when it comes to the flow of thought. She was told the older will serve the younger. But, But he interrupts himself with that dash statement in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. Why does God do it this way? Why must it be this way? Because God is an electing God. God fulfills His purposes by electing, is the first word in that sentence, and by calling as well. This is, this is just how God works. Why does it have to be God chooses some and not others? That's just how God is. He fulfills His purposes by electing and by calling. We learned about that in Romans 8, 29, and 30. So it's got to be this way because of the purpose of God. How does God work? Well, he he works according to his elective purposes and according to his calling. We're just talking about the godness of God. This is what he does. You might be thinking, well, that sounds dangerous. To give one person all the power? 
to fulfill His purposes, it is dangerous. Unless you're talking about God. But He's not tame. He's not a pet. He's God. Now there's another reason why it has to be this way. Also coming out in verse 11. If you would look at those four words that come toward the end, not because of works. Not because of works. Not because of works. That's familiar to us as Christians. That comes up over and over again when we're hearing about the gospel, which is by grace alone. Not as a result of works, so that anyone may boast. Ephesians 2, right? Verses 8 and 9. Not of works, not of works, not of works, not of works. We've learned in Romans, salvation is not by works. It's only by grace. Grace alone. Why do we have to believe an unconditional election that God chooses some based upon nothing they've done? And He doesn't choose others. He rejects them. Why do we believe that? If you really want to talk about why we would believe that, well, because it's in the Bible. Yes. If you really want to start pushing it and thinking it through, it's because we believe the gospel. And the gospel is by grace alone. Please think about this. I realize this is not kindergarten level stuff. Although I also remind you that Romans was written to people who were relatively new Christians. It's so that it's not of works. It's not what we do. You know what? If you say that God saves because He first sees us initiating a relationship with Him, you believe in salvation by works. You say, well, I'm a Christian. I believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. I just don't like this election stuff where God chooses some people and He does it all. That's, you might not realize, and I'm not trying to be rude, but you just effectively talked out of both sides of your mouth. He's arguing here. This is how it is, and this is how God works, so that salvation truly is not of works. You see, if it works this way, God looks to see what Pat does. Oh, that's what Pat does. You know what? And he's a lot, he does a lot better things than his neighbor, so I will choose him. No, that's not how it works. That would be salvation by works. Instead, God does it all before the very beginning so that it's not of works. I'm very concerned that a lot of us say we believe the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We just don't like that kind of mean doctrine of election. I say embrace it because it actually is what keeps your salvation view of Christ being by grace alone. Look with me if you would at verse 11, or excuse me, chapter 11, verses 5 through 8. Actually, we'll just look at 5. Maybe six. We had a newcomers class today and there were newcomers in the class from first service. I high-fived them. I said, after Romans 9, you stayed? You must be elect. I didn't say that. (laughs) Okay, salvation is by grace, not by works. Well, that's tied to election. Look at verse... 5 of Romans 11. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen. It's the same Greek word translated elect in other places. Chosen or elected by grace. But, verse 6 says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That's a good complementary passage to the one we're looking at. I like those three words. Chosen by grace. Elect by grace. You've got to have a place for election. And it's got to be unconditional election. It's got to be the Romans 9 kind of election. Or logically, you believe in a form of salvation by works, which turns the Bible on its head. Let's flesh this out a little bit more, and then we'll talk about 
why some would say everything I've said so far is meaningless. Let's just, let me pastorally trace this a little bit more and flesh it out a little bit more. Our thinking sometimes is like this. Okay. And by the way, the next question is going to be, you know, is God unjust? Is God unfair? Because we're thinking it in our mind. That's not fair. And what we're thinking so many times is, God owes it to everybody. You know, uh, this business of God showing His saving grace to some and not to others, that's not fair. Well, that would be a whole other topic, perhaps. But what we're thinking is, even if we don't say it in these ways, God owes it to everyone. God owes everyone grace. Think about that. Owes and grace in the same thought doesn't make any sense. Owes assumes deserving. Owes assumes earning. God owes grace? That's nonsensical. Grace is giving what is not deserved. And so salvation by grace is not God seeing us loving Him. How about the Bible? That's, uh, how about the fact that the Bible says we love Him because He first what? He first loved us. Otherwise, salvation would be by works. All of this is in our Bibles to make one major point, and that is God doesn't drop the ball. God is not some sort of wuss who has really big ideals and plans who can't follow through. No, he's a decreeing God who freely gives his grace where he sees fit according to his own good pleasure. I don't know exactly how it all works, but it's certainly here. And this is the antidote to seeing God as a failure. I suppose we could reverse it if you think, I don't believe in unconditional election. I don't believe this Romans 9 business. Logically, then, you know what? You believe God tries, but he just can't get the job done. Poor God. May it never be, is what we're going to see. With all of that said, some will suggest to me that everything I've said so far means nothing because I've wrongly interpreted the entire chapter. And here's why. Some would say Romans 9 has nothing to do with individuals being saved. Romans 9 is about God electing nations, not individuals. And if that's true, pretty much everything I've said so far is wrong. Here's the problem. There's all kinds of individual emphasis in Romans chapter 9. Starting with Jacob and Esau in a womb before they'd done anything. Last time I checked, Jacob and Esau are individuals. It's true, though, when you look up the Old Testament passages cited, whether it be Malachi 1, Genesis 25, or the others, it's true, when you look at their context, there's definitely a national emphasis. But what can be true with a nation can be true with individuals. You know what? It's true God does elect nations and pass others by, but it's also true that God elects individuals and passes others by. Both are true. It's not either or. And he certainly has an individual emphasis here. Let me give you another argument for that, and that's Romans 8. Romans 8 and 9 go together, and in Romans chapter 8, there's a clear individual emphasis to the point where he talks about in verses 28 and 29, those have been called according to his purpose, called in 29, predestined 30, all of those things. That's individual emphasis. Well, he uses the same kind of verbiage in Romans 9.11, in Romans 9.7. Also, we could look at Romans 11. We won't for the sake of time. But Romans 11.7 is talking about the same things. And there's clearly an individual emphasis. Romans 9.11 compared with Romans 11.7, it's talking about individuals. Romans 9.24 clearly talking about individuals, not a nation. And so I just at least mention it to you so that you don't think I, I wasn't aware that there's another view. But you can't miss the individual emphasis of 8 flowing into 9, flowing into 11, God chooses individuals and He doesn't choose all individuals. Just like He chooses nations and He doesn't choose all nations. I feel like this is turning into a Bible lecture class, but we'll understand it. 
God isn't a universalist. He's never tried to be one. Chooses. Calls some. Doesn't call everyone. If you don't have that figured out and you don't see that in the Bible, then the logical conclusion is God has failed. We don't want to go there. Paul says, don't go there. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. Two illustrations. Just remember your Old Testament, he's saying. Before we transition into Romans 8, where I want to look, talking about communion, I have a quotation from one of my favorite writers, R.C. Sproul. He has a new commentary on Romans that I found to be helpful and refreshing. And in a way that only R.C. can do it, he says this. And this might really be what some of you have been looking for, so, so be ready for this. At the heart of this text is indeed a profound affirmation of free will. Some of you are thinking, what about free will? Some of you are thinking, has R.C. Sproul lost his mind? depending on where you are in the theological continuum. At the heart of this text is indeed a profound affirmation of free will. It teaches that our salvation rests ultimately and eternally on free will. But it is not our free will. (laughs) It is God's. It is the free will of the Creator, the Redeemer, who in His sovereign grace pours His mercy out upon those He chooses. In this case, God distinguishes between Jacob and Esau, the younger and the elder. If you really, really want free will and your cardinal doctrine, the main thing you live for and the way you read the Bible is through the lens of free will, I say, good job. It's God's free will because He's God and so He does whatever He wants to do. And by definition, what He does is right. Even if you find it dangerous and you're looking for a more domesticated God, This is who He is. And this is where I go back to the verbiage of Romans earlier. Let God be found true. Even if it means every man is found a liar. Hey, you know what? I'm siding with God. I'm siding with God. I can't wait for next time. Next time, look at Romans 9.14. I wish we could do it now because it might really help some of you. 9.14 says, what shall we say then? I'd like to interview each of you afterward. What are you thinking? What do you do with that, you know? What's on your mind now? Well, he's anticipating that. What shall we say then? Some want to say, I don't like it. Some are going to say, that's not what I learned in Awana. Some are going to say, that's not what I was taught. That's not what so-and-so philosopher says. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God just wrong and and, and bad? He says, by no means. And then he doesn't philosophize and try to undo it or unexplain it. He just gives us more. For he says to Moses, oh, okay, I got another Bible verse for you. You didn't like the other two? He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Wow! He's just going to keep going there and keep going there and keep going there so that we see that God is God and He's not your pet and He's not under your thumb and subject to your free will. God is God. God is in charge. The only way anyone could ever be saved is if God chose some to be saved because by nature in our identification with Adam we're all rebels. I love the reality of election because I wouldn't be here otherwise. I'd probably be dead. I love it, love it, love it, love it, love it because if God were waiting for me to choose Him, He would never, ever, ever, ever have me. It's all of Him. It's all of Him. Now we're going to transition and get ready for communion. And let me just make this easy. The cross is central to what we've been learning about. Now, I realize we didn't emphasize it today so far, but it really is central to the whole thing because moving into Romans 9 was Romans 8 where he talks about us, those who are the called, those who are the elect of God, having 
everything that we would ever, ever, ever want or need when it comes to our spiritual lives. And it's tied to the cross. It's tied to Christ. Who is central to God's electing purposes? It is Christ. He is central. How about Ephesians 1.4? Listen to this. He, God, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That's election talk. That's predestination talk. That God chose us in Him, in Christ, and is united with Christ before the, the foundation of the world? How about that? See, it was all tied to Christ. In Him, in unison with Him, in union with Him. So when, when God was planning everything for the ages, and He was in fact planning to save, and He was choosing and electing and predestinating, it wasn't somehow in some sort of isolation. It was tied to Christ. The, the only reason election works is because of Christ. Look with me, if you would, at Romans 8 before we have uh, the, those come and serve us. Because we need to see what Christ has done and how significant He is. In Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Now look at 8.33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? You know, if you're elect of God, you know what? No one can throw a legitimate charge against you. You are safe. You are secure. And that's why He just bursts into praise. Who, who can bring a charge against God's elect? But you know what really causes that to have its weight and its significance? It's, it's, it's Christ. Because look at the verse before that. He who did not spare His own Son. Here's the fuel to election. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? This is fantastic. This is great. He gives His Son, and if He gives His Son... It means He's going to give you everything. That's the flow of thought in that passage. And what's the everything that He gives us? Well, if we go earlier in the passage, there's no doubt what He's talking about. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things together work for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, according to God's electing plan, it's all going to work out for us. Verse 29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, called He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And then He keeps going and talking about this great giving of all things. No doubt the all things are those things talked about in 28, 29, and 30. Because of Christ, election is effective. Because of Christ, predestination is effective. Because of Christ, justification is effective. Because of Christ, calling is effective. Because of Christ, God's foreloving or foreknowing is effective. It's all about Christ in the end. It's all about Christ in the end. Central to God's electing purposes, Christ. His perfect work, His perfect sacrifice. When we eat the bread today and we drink the wine and we hear Jesus saying, do this in remembrance of Me, that should really mean something. In remembrance of Me, the One who is central to the electing purposes of God. In remembrance of Me, the One in whom you are united with and have been united with according to the plan of God before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1. Do this in remembrance of me, the one who came here and lived a perfect life on your behalf, fulfilling all righteousness. Do this in remembrance of me, the one who came and absorbed the full wrath of God on your behalf, the wrath that you deserve. Do this in remembrance of me, the one who rose again from the dead victoriously so that you might be able to live a different life as a Christian honoring God, Romans 6. Do this in remembrance of me, the one who fully and completely and in every way necessary secured your salvation. How's that? It doesn't get any better. This is not a ditty we're remembering. We're talking about something that was put into place, planned and then put into place, 
planned before time ever began. And if Christ died for you, it says in verse 33, in essence, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Isn't that good? Man, sometimes I wish we were Baptists. It doesn't get any better. Theology is important. We've all learned today that it's so important that it really is all of grace. Grace, grace. Not earned grace, which is nonsense. It's all grace. It's all grace. We're going to be served bread in just a minute, and then wine. We'll eat and drink together, but pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to gather in the name of your great Son, And we don't know how it all works or exactly why you've chosen to do things the way you've done them. But we do know, as it says in Ephesians, you've done this according to your good pleasure. And God, as a pastor, I pray for, for the folks who are here right now today that, that they would find pleasure in the things you find pleasure in. And according to Ephesians 1, you have found pleasure in choosing us before the foundation of the world in Christ. May our affections be the same kind of affections that you have. That we would not be bitter, that we would not be begrudging, that we would not be questioning your fairness. That we would see you as a great God who loved us while we were still sinners that we would repent of our works-based views of salvation, that we would be in awe that you are a God who did all of this even before time began, even before you put it into practice and before you put it into play in this world through Christ. It was according to your perfect plan. And as we obey the Lord Jesus Christ now and we eat bread and we drink wine, may we remember him in his greatness. In Jesus' name, amen.